This is Do School Better, a podcast for people who want to transform education. My name is Doris Corda, and for the past several years, I've been training educators. Listen to these episodes and hear about some of the extraordinary programs they've created. We call these pioneers the fire starters. See if you can get some ideas that you can implement yourself to change your own practice. In this episode, Dora speaks with Dr. Rand Harrington and Phil Klein of Kent Denver School in Colorado. Rand is the head of school, and Phil is an instructor of AP Economics, director of the Hunt Family Institute for Entrepreneurial Education, and director of development. They discuss creating structures in school to leverage expertise both in and out of the building to allow for authentic learning. They also highlight the importance of teachers acting as curricular architects to design classes for today's students. And if you like this episode and know someone else who might enjoy it, we ask that you share it with them so that we can all do school better. Rand and Phil, hello. Hi, Doris. Hello, Doris. Oh, hello. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for for both being here. This is going to be very fun. I'd like to start for our listeners by having you introduce yourselves. Uh, Maybe, Rand, you can start. Terrific. Well, this is uh, this is Rand, and this is my fourth year as head of school at, at Kent Denver in Colorado. Prior to, to being here, I was associate head of school at the Blake School in, in Minneapolis, where I oversaw academics. But even before that, my work in academics has spanned from middle school through college. And uh, my PhD is in physics from the University of Washington, and I had worked there in the physics education research group and got very involved in, in thinking about this gap between uh, what we teach and and what students learn and and intellectually very curious about how to close that gap and applying some of the evidence-based reasoning that a physicist applies to systems into thinking about how to close that gap and I ended up working at the University of Maine and then helping to start an independent school in California so I love schools I I, I love working with teachers and I, I believe deeply in the idea that education can change the world it's the most satisfying uh, work that I've ever done, and I'm thrilled uh, to be here and, and having this conversation. That's fantastic. And just, Rand, one thing, you've been an educator in university, public, and private schools, yes? That's correct. And I was supervising student teachers in the Orono Public Schools in Maine, and I had a joint appointment in the College of Physics and Astronomy and the College of Education, so I've worked at both sides of that. That's really great and gives you a very, very interesting and valuable perspective on all this. So, Phil, tell us about yourself. So, my name is Phil Klein. I am an AP economics teacher, uh, director of the Hunt Family Institute for Entrepreneurial Education here at Kent Denver, and I'm also the director of development. Um, my story as a as an educator, sort of my way in, is a little bit different than the traditional story. I actually spent the first 20 years out of college Working in the private sector, I worked for Walt Disney and for Procter & Gamble and for Dish Network before coming to the world of education. Um, I found after 20 years, I had sort of that mid-career conversation with myself, I'll call it, that, that many of us have and wanted to know what the next 20 years would hold. And I, and I realized that I wanted to do something different. At the time I was doing this, I actually got a call from a friend who said, hey, I know you've done some volunteer fundraising for your kid's school, would you ever be interested in doing that full-time? And I, my initial answer was, no, I'm not interested in that. Um, but then they talked me into uh, having a conversation with the person who was then the head of the school here at Kent Denver. And 
and I was sold. And he also said, oh, by the way, you can teach. And, and I think in retrospect, that's really where I was hooked. I had done volunteer work as a teacher uh, with kids in the first 20 years of my career and loved it. It's my second year here at Ken Denver, I started the AP economics curriculum and fell in love with it. I fell in love with the idea of engaging kids in things that they didn't necessarily know much about yet, but as the, te- the kids and I learned together, just watching their eyes open up, watching their worldview expand, watching them realize that they now in their had in their hands just knowledge. A lot of it was just for the, the sake of it and the love of knowledge, but also other kids saying, hey, I might be able to be able to apply some of this was really, really exciting. I also realized that kids love, once they have this knowledge, they love to express that knowledge. They love to exercise it. And a lot of the work that I'm doing now in the AP economics class and also in the Entrepreneurial Institute are giving kids chance chances to deepen their level of learning and really deepen their love for the subject material that we're, that we're teaching. That's awesome. And so you, as an AP economics teacher, you were already having a blast with this. Why did you come to the workshop and what you were hoping to do and what did you end up doing? So I was in, I was, I think, three years into the AP economics curriculum and had been having a a lot of fun with a group of kids in that class that were interested in doing simulations. So simulating markets for some things that they were learning and basically putting together, putting together some small businesses. Coming out of that, some of the excitement there combined with some kids in the school who had ideas for either nonprofits or for small businesses for other enterprises, I realized that as a school, we weren't fully utilizing the opportunity to support these kids who had entrepreneurial ideas. And I want to be clear up front, the way we define entrepreneurship at Kent Denver might be a little different than the way some other schools or even people identify it. We talk, we talk about entrepreneurship as ideas that can add value to the world. And some of those kids like to think of it in the context of a nonprofit. And actually, Doris, I remember you highlighted some kids that created a product that was intended to reduce plastic bags in the oceans. And they did it by creating a kiosk that people could use to exchange their reusable bags. Happened to be an interesting underlying idea for a business, but they were really motivated by uh, I think it was sea turtles, if I'm not yeah, they mistaken. wanted to save they wanted to save sea turtles. yeah, the, I was really inspired um when I came to the workshop and saw that what you were talking about in the context of entrepreneurship was very similar to what we wanted to do here at Kent Denver. This underlying idea that if a student has something they're interested in doing, they're Taking an idea, we call it to uh, taking ideas and putting them into action. Right. I like to tell students of entrepreneurship that as a school, we're not really concerned about whether their idea works in the end. We're much more interested in the process. We're much more interested in the experience that those kids have of looking at problems and understanding that they don't have all the knowledge that they need yet to necessarily answer those questions. And that part of the entrepreneurial process is, in our case at Kent Denver, reaching out to a network of interested adults, including a lot of our teachers who are interested and passionate about their particular subject matter and imparting that knowledge onto those kids, whether it's knowledge of statistics or knowledge of, and and we'll get into an example, um, actually Rand was able to connect some kids who are having problems with an algorithm in 
a quadcopter. And Rand actually introduced these kids to a PhD level mathematician who was able to help them solve some problems. And frankly, I think this kid, Alex, the one who, who was solving the problem, he's as interested as in math right now as he is in anything after having had that experience. Yeah, it's an amazing thing what happens when you actually see find out that this stuff is useful somehow. <laughs> and, and and you know what? I, I would say in addition to that, that a kid like Alex, it, it's useful. But he also, I think, is is now just passionate about math. He might not have been in it before. When, again, whether he ends up making this quadcopter fly or not, we hope they do. You've got a kid who is starting to make connections between what he's learning in the classroom and opportunities to dig deeper. As we learned, you know, this this kid was doing PhD level math and algorithms that nobody at Kent Denver had experience in and nobody yeah. at Kent Denver could help him with, but it was somebody who was, this PhD in math was passionate about connecting this kid to some answers. Yeah, well, exactly. And so you have developed an entrepreneurship institute, yes? Yes. And if I'm a Kent Denver student, how do I participate in the Institute? What, what are the sure. offerings at this point? Sure. So the Institute, I would say right now, is very much in its nascent stages. And, and I think Rand's going to talk a little bit about our vision for institutes in general. The idea for the Entrepreneurial Education Institute is to create opportunities for kids who have an idea, whether it's a nonprofit or it's a for-profit or just something that they think could be really worthwhile. Right now, in, in, in the stage where we are at the Institute, the opportunity is for us to connect those students with either other students or adults, whether they are teachers or administrators or our alumni or a parent, who can help connect them to the knowledge they need in order to make whatever that idea is work. I used the example a minute ago about a company called Magnexo Systems. Magnexo Systems is a group of four boys who started an idea started with an idea for a quadcopter, so a drone that actually works better than conventional drones do. We have another girl who is uh, is building an app for kids with anxiety because she believes there's a there's a really powerful opportunity for kids who suffer from anxiety to take advantage of the technology in a really simple app to help them treat that. We have another group of kids who are working on an augmented reality application that they can use here in the school. The Entrepreneurial Education Institute is designed primarily, uh, before we start talking about additional classes they can take, is designed primarily to connect them with other students and with adults who can help them bring those ideas to life, those ideas that ultimately, as we say, add value to the world. Right. And I was just going insert, to insert something that's been interesting to watch. Kids, if you give them the right uh, conditions, for coming up with their ideas that they're passionate about, that they want to pursue. They want to do things that make the world a better place. And so it's been very interesting. You brought up the example that you remembered of the sea turtle group, the group that wanted to save sea turtles. I've found that students in all these entrepreneurship programs, after some initial guidance and learning, tend all of them to create ideas that will somehow add value to the world. That's what they want to work on, this generation. They want to they want to make the world a better place. 
I remember, Doris, you telling us in that workshop that, in, in fact, if kids are working on things that don't add value that way, there isn't a, we like to talk about it here at Kent Denver as an ethical consideration for what they're doing. I remember you telling us that the kids actually push back on it and, yeah. and will question it and be critical of it. And I think part of our mission statement as a school is that, that we set high ethical standards for our students and for ourselves. One of the criteria that we want to set for projects that kids work on is an ethical consideration and making sure that the kids are able to reflect on what they're doing in the context of the impact, positive or sometimes, you know, sometimes there are negative impacts of the things we do. But in a more holistic sense, why is what they're doing going to make the world a better place? And I do remember that. I remember that coming up very clearly with the Hawkins students that, that you guys interviewed. Absolutely. So I want to take it up a level now. Uh, and we could, we could talk for hours. I know you and me, Phil, about what the incredible stuff you're building and, and how it's showing up in your students. But I want to take this up now and say, okay, so Rand, this is cool. You have this incredible educator here who's got a pretty untraditional background that he brings to this and a huge amount of passion for this work and is building an extraordinary entrepreneurship uh, institute and program. How does any of that as a head of school with a mission who's by your own admission passionate about teaching and learning? Uh, You run an academic school. It's a high school. It's a college preparatory school. How does any of this program play into your bigger mission with your school? It's a great question. I do think that institutional structures have an impact, even down to the classroom level. And I've I've done a lot of thinking about our institutional structures for many years. As you know, colleges and high schools have had pretty much the same structure in terms of of being uh, organized by departments. And if you look at the university level, you see that they've started for many years have attacked this by creating what you might call a matrix organization, where you have uh, core, core departments and then uh, you start seeing centers or institutes of interdisciplinary studies uh, around various topics emerge to connect the departments together. Uh, you've seen that happen a little bit in high schools, but not much. And I think it's probably time for us to be thinking about alternative structures to support this kind of learning. I don't think that it's something that you want you would want to replace the traditional structures with, because I think have done well, the traditional structures do provide a really important role in terms of teaching foundational concepts and skills. And certainly my experience is that project-based or problem-based or, or entrepreneurship, whatever you want to call it, the sort of applied side of things, even if done well, often leave a gap in their skill level. It doesn't necessarily develop the skills and concepts that they need to, to do stuff at a more sophisticated level. So you want kids applying things that they've learned. And so I think, you know, you think about the three reasons for learning in schools. The one that, that resonates with me the most is, is just love of learning, certainly as a physicist, uh, thinking about ideas and the pure love of le- learning, I think is part of what makes us human. And then there's the reason for learning to sort of get certified, right, to get entrance to the next level, whether it's college or a job. And that's where grades and assessments come in. That's mostly what schools do. And then the third area would be learning for a purpose. And this is really what you and Phil are talking about, uh, learning that's framed around uh, an authentic problem in the world and a, a way to apply that. And, and I think the application piece is really important, but I also think it's really 
cautionary for schools not to jump past the, the foundational skills. Kids still need to know how to write. They need to know how to do math. They need to know about civics and U.S. history and, and thinking about ideas and literature and about relationships and all the important things that, that make us human in the world. Those are important. And, yes. And so how does one uh, address this given the, the biggest constraint we all face in schools, which is time, right? You only have a certain amount of time. And every time you put something on the table, such as this institute work uh, or these applied ideas, you've got to be prepared to take something else off the table. And I think that's the most difficult conversations that schools have. Um, so we sort of envision here, we're starting slowly with this, but thinking about, again, a structure that preserves our core departments, but then uh, adding an additional structure that we're calling institutes that kids can participate in uh, once they have a certain amount of agency and, and, and with a little encouragement that really want to apply their ideas uh, across the disciplines in, in, a, in sort of a more authentic context. We also see this as um, a way to leverage innovation in our current courses too, right? So rather than just being an add-on, right, if a, if a kid wants to pursue something, for example, in technology and design, that they could also approach and we encourage our teachers to have projects within their, their own courses that are differentiated so that a student could do a tech and design-related project, uh, for example, in an English class, uh, you know, do a podcast or do something related to technology and programming uh, as part of their, their core English classes. So we see this as a lever to sort of innovate in our existing courses as well. That's interesting. Um, but giving kids also opportunities to do things uh, in the summer or doing a capstone project uh, or an internship project that we already have some of those structures that exist. You know, I think all schools provide this sort of cross-disciplinary work in the form of extracurriculars. You see it in Model UN, uh, after-school activities, you know, whether it's a robotics team or a speech and debate. And the question is, how do we create structures in our schools to support those those activities that are that don't exist solely within a, a department? Well, it's in, it's interesting you say this because I like what you're talking about in terms of the structures and the institutes. So I separate the question of what are the learning objectives? What learning objectives do you have for this group of students in this time that you're going to have them? And the learning objectives. Uh, some of them are skill kind of things, like I want them to learn analytical thinking, and I want them to develop uh, problem-solving skills, and I want them to be better communicators, and I want them to develop writing skills. And then there can be, and there should be, concepts and knowledge, and some people call it content, uh, all that stuff that can also be learning objectives. And and then separately is the question of, given those learning objectives, how do we structure the learning experience to maximize the learning that's going to happen and, and the achievement of those objectives? And I think what we confuse in education these days a lot is we talk about the wrong things. We argue about, should it be PBL or should it be entrepreneurship? Or should it be interdisciplinary? Or should it be that? And we get, as educators, into these discussions about, okay, this is an English class, and in what we're doing, the kids are doing in the English class, is that a skill or is that content? And there's a difference between the structures in, in education, the disciplines, and, and what kinds of 
things come out of building schools around academic disciplines in the way that we have and how we approach designing a learning experience, which could be a course, could be a project, could be a unit, whatever it is. If I'm teaching a, if you assign me, uh, okay, Doris, you're going to be our physics teacher. Here's your physics class. And you say in this, you know, this is your AP physics class. This is the, these are the key objectives. And they're really mostly about equipping the students to excel in a way that shows up on an AP physics test. I'm going to still use all kinds of different strategies and how I set up the teaching so that the learning happens really powerfully. And it will likely have in it some interdisciplinary projects some real world projects and some other things. Does that make sense? You know, you, you've hit on, I think, exactly the, the shift in what you might call a, a modern pedagogy where we're asking our teachers to be curricular architects. Yep. And, you know, the old teaching uh, methodologies where you blow the dust off your yellow notes at the beginning of the year and, yeah. and, and mark through, usually determine almost entirely by the table of contents and whatever book that, that was adopted. Uh, and those days are over. And, yeah. And, and because those days are over and you look at what we're asking teachers to do, the skill set required for a teacher to be successful in this new environment are really exceptional. And yes. so this is why my focus has been throughout my career on teacher preparation, attracting and retaining great teachers. It is, I think, the singular most uh, urgent uh, issue in the country uh, is what we're doing with our teaching profession and making sure that, that we have qualified teachers for our schools that can do this kind of work. This is a really challenging issue. And I think one of the things to, to loop this back into institutional structures is how do we attract uh, adults into our community who have a high level of expertise and can mentor kids? Uh, and I think if we've had, you know, in independent schools particularly, but also in the public schools, you're, you're always getting either alums or parents that are interested in helping out. In our departmental structures with our you know, fairly tight curricular narratives, it's, it's very difficult, short of having someone come guest lecture or, or guests you know, come in and, and talk to kids on occasion, to fit them in and find a place for them in our departmental curriculums. But if you think about kids that are working on projects, uh, as Phil described, and even Phil's description, you can see the number of people outside of our school employees or, or regular faculty that have interacted, been able to interact with these kids and help them, whether it's an engineer, you know, air electronics or um, an alum that's working in a local business. So the most important piece uh, in terms of, of attracting adults into schools is figuring out structures that allow folks with um, non-traditional backgrounds that have particularly high expertise a way to volunteer their time or to work with kids. And Having uh, institution structures rather than just departments, I think, allows us to do this. It also allows me to recruit faculty in a different way, uh, in the sense that you have folks that are interested, certainly, in being in the in a traditional classroom, teaching four or five periods a day. But then you have, in our independent school world, an ability to to attract career changers, as, as Phil is a, a career changer, and I think some of our best faculty have been career changers that have, have gone from an industry in which they develop deep expertise 
and now are interested in doing something different. And uh, if we can get them into our schools, a lot of those folks aren't interested in just teaching. They're also interested in working uh, with kids uh, on authentic problems. And since they've been out in the world, as you have, Doris, they can help mentor kids and really create a lot of value. So I think we have to look at schools in terms of, of structures that allow for a different kind of individual to work here and, and to work with kids. And, uh, and that's going to be, I think, as I shared earlier, the biggest challenge the country's facing. Uh, how do we get, bring great teachers into the schools? And again, what we're asking them to do and the kind of pedagogy you, you described, Doris, requires such a different skill set. And here's my pitch uh, to folks out there that may be listening to this is teaching is the greatest profession in the world. And we, you hear about all these terrible things about you know, the conditions and low pay and so forth. Uh, let me tell you, uh, if you're intellectually curious and you love working with kids, there, there is no better job. And I'm hoping to, that we can attract more people that are, that are successful in their industry to come work with our, our kids because uh, our future depends on it. I, I agree. And actually, it's interesting because it loops back to what we were saying earlier about students today, young people today want to work on things that are meaningful. So do adults. And, you know, Phil, you described after 20 years in industry, you had a bit of a, you know, mid-career crisis, I'll call it. You didn't use that word, but that's a very common thing to say, okay, I've, I've been doing this. This is great. I'm ready for a new chapter and I want this new chapter to allow me to have purpose and add meaning in maybe ways that I haven't so far, different ways. Absolutely, Doris. I think too, it, it, what I've learned and I'm now able to look sort of seven years in the rear of your mirror, we, we ask our kids to be lifelong learners and we ask our kids to never lose that enthusiasm and curiosity for, for learning new things. And I realized I'm one of those people, too. And as an educator, I get so much joy out of really two things. One is teaching kids a concept. And I'll speak specifically for economics. Teaching, uh, We were teaching recently the concept of exchange rate policy and how exchange rates fluctuate between countries. And for three quarters of the kids in the room, they literally looked and once they got it, just said, oh, wow, I love knowing that. Mm -hmm. Just knowing how exchange rates work is fascinating. And there were some kids in the room, too, who say, oh, wait, I'll bet I could apply that to my business. So the kids, uh, this this girl with her app, she has to figure out, well, if people do start buying this, what if it starts sell, starts to sell around the world? But for me as a lifelong learner, it's also really inspiring and really exciting for those kids, you just see their eyes open up. And the fact that they now understand something that they didn't is really exciting. Really, and, really and exciting. I'll just interject here because as part of that lesson, Phil took his class to the headquarters at Western Union. And you can imagine the importance of exchange rates to a company like Western Union. Sure. And they got to speak with leaders from all over the world that were uh, gathered there. Uh, at a meeting at their headquarters and talk about these ideas. It's pretty powerful. It is. And taking going back to, you know, you, you brought up an example of a kid who learned very sophisticated math, right? And is now yep. very excited about mathematics. Once you get excited about the power and joy of learning itself, and that's what we're talking about. How do you create a learning experience for kids where they get empowered by their own ability to learn and love interest in, in learning, then 
what the thing is that they're learning. That's that's something as a curricular designer, as an architect, as a K-12 teacher, that's the part of the challenge of how you structure the learning experience. Well, I, you know, I want them to learn a, a lot about math modeling and optimization and linear programming and all that. That's yeah, go, have those goals that are very specific and very old school language rigorous. But how do you get that to happen? As Rand, you said, it's a whole different world now because of technology. In yeah, turn- I, I will. I will add uh, one more institutional structural change that we need to do in schools, and that is that yes, the teachers coming in need to have a high level of expertise, certainly in their content areas. Um, they also need to know how to design curriculum and activities, and to do that well, they really need to also be psychologists, right? You know, cognitive mm-hmm. psychologists, and, and understand how how brains work, particularly teenager brains and so forth. And I think it pertains to the need for better professional development within our schools, ability to train and support teachers on their own growth, and have professional growth as part of of the expectations of of being a professional educator. And we can't just sort of rely on the colleges of ed to do that and deliver for us the kind of high-level teachers that we need. And so I think you'll see around the country, particularly in the independent school world, but I think you see this in public schools as well, partnering with graduate schools or, or creating centers for teaching and learning uh, on their own campuses. And so that we can recruit folks that may not have an education degree, may not uh, have had that much experience teaching but that they can join a community that, that they can continue to grow in their own expertise around how kids learn. And, and that's a really important piece. Yeah, it is an important piece. And I would add that all these things are important. But if you look at the challenge we have in education, we also need to take the existing teachers in schools who came to teaching for all the reasons all of us have and create programs to help them completely revise and relearn the way they approach curriculum development and teaching. It's a a whole different practice. And the numbers don't work if we rely only on the new teachers coming in, wherever they come from, whether graduate schools or other careers. We also have to work with the teachers who are there. And that's a joyful thing because the teachers who are in place, you know, we have globally, what, millions of, of educators who've yeah. been working with kids and get kids really well. My, my guiding to- principle around this, Doris, is that whatever we think of as great education for kids, we should be doing the same thing with adults. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly right. It. Uh, one of the things that we did here was we created an opportunity for for faculty to write summer curriculum grants. And so they would um, uh, come up with an idea. It had to be sort of a transformative curriculum idea that they wanted to try out. And we uh, we paid them to come in the summer to, to, to work together to develop the idea. Actually, we didn't pay them until they delivered on it, which was to present to the rest of the faculty at the start of the school year what their idea was. Okay, I love that. And then, uh, and then they implemented it during the school year. And, and, you know, we started with, I think, 30 teachers involved in that program. I think this last year we had 45 teachers participating in, in collaborative groups, basically becoming curricular architects, right, and, and, and designing learning experiences. It's really hard to do that during the school year because of the time constraints. Yes. Uh, somebody once told me that, that redoing your curriculum in the middle of school year is like, like rebuilding a boat in the middle of the ocean. You can do it, but you got to be careful because you got to keep everything afloat. And so 
I think summer is a really great time to do this sort of uh, accelerated professional growth and, and careful thoughts about curriculum design that you're you're describing. I love that. And I love what you did. And so these teachers, just to be clear, in the summer who are doing this, they're not, are they working together with other teachers? Yes, it's a requirement of our program that it's a collaboration. So they have so to I, get- So I uh, participated in one of these summer curricular grant sessions two summers ago. And as a result, three teachers and I were able to integrate the work that was going on in our classrooms between our students during the fall semester. And we were able to cross economics, statistics, and even some art in a project that we did that spanned the entire school. And the motivation for us was that we had time in the summer when we weren't as busy as we are during the school year. And we had an opportunity to rethink the way that our classes ran. And and it was a lot of fun for me to work with uh, one of our statistics teachers who's been teaching for 20 years, who was motivated by the idea of trying something new, but was also to instill in me this idea that um, there are things that kids can learn by us teaching in a different way that they wouldn't have otherwise taken away. So not only were we as teachers motivated to work together, but we then had our students across three different classes finding times outside of the normal school day, sometimes during the class day, to work together on these on these challenges that we put in front of them. It was it was really exciting. I'm sure it was, and Rand, I have to say that's a that's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant thing for you to do. If you're not in education, if you're out in industry, you don't understand just how significant and strategic and impactful and different that idea is. Uh, historically, teachers are in their room and they're in their silos and they're supposed to be the master of their domain. And in that one program you just described, you're hitting on everything that matters in terms of how you create institutional scaffolding for innovation and culture change to happen in the right direction in a school. I'm really impressed that you do that. That's fantastic. Well, the teachers have really stepped up. It's really been a a fun program uh, to work on. That's great. Well, listen, the work that you're doing, both of you in the school, Phil, you and the program you're building, nascent or not, it sounds just like you're rocking it. And I will continue to want to keep in touch with you and hear how it's developing. Very exciting. And Rand, your leadership and the way in which you're building new practices inside the classrooms in your school are, are really, they sound extraordinary. And I love that we had this conversation. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to spark a lot of ideas for people all over the world. Well, thank you, Doris. I, I totally enjoyed the conversation and the, and the privilege to, to speak with you today. Thanks. Have a great day, guys. Okay. Thank you so much, Doris. You too. If you want to hear more podcasts like this or learn about the Corda Method, visit our website at wildfire-education.org.